Welcome to Oak City Church, a family of learners, lovers, and givers sent. For more information, visit us online at oakcitychurch.com. Let us know if we can help you in any way. Thank you for listening. Good morning. Welcome to Oak City Church. If you're new, if you're tuning in for the first time, we're really glad that you are here this morning. Um, If there's anything that we can do to help you out, any questions that we can answer, we would love to do that for you. I have one Uh, Just one announcement this morning. Tomorrow night, we have a cultural engagement forum. That is um, a a group of people that have been meeting a handful of times over the year. And uh, because we're just in a a time as a church that I don't think we've been in, as the church in America, our position in the culture has changed so quickly over the last few years, and so many different things are happening. There's a group of people we're trying to figure out what's the best way for us to respond to what's going on in the culture. And really with an eye, I started that group at the beginning of the year with an eye towards how do we coach the church best into um, responding to what's going on with our culture? How would the Lord have us do that? So we'd love to have you join us uh, tomorrow night for that. I'm going to ask you to stand. Uh, I'm going to read most of Genesis chapter 2 today. So it's going to take a minute. And uh, if you're new to Oak City Church, um, this is something that we do to... Uh, just acknowledge that, that God's words mean more than my words. They mean more than your words. These are the most important words that will be spoken uh, this morning, and to, to thank God for that. So I'll read this. At the end of it, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord, and you'll say, thanks be to God. This is from Genesis chapter 2. On the day the Lord God made earth and heavens, no shrub of the field being yet on the earth, and no plant of the field yet sprouted, for the Lord God had not caused rain to fall on the earth, and there was no human to till the soil, and the wetness would well from the earth to water all the surface of the soil. Then the Lord God fashioned human, humus from the soil, and blew into his nostrils the breath of life, and the human being became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden to the east, and he placed there the human he had fashioned, and the Lord God caused to sprout from the soil every tree lovely to look at and good for food. And the tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of knowledge, good and evil. Now a river runs out of Eden to water the garden, and from there splits off into four streams. The name of the first is the Pishon, the one that winds through the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is goodly. Delium is there, and lapis lazuli. And the name of the second river is Gion. The one that winds through all the land of Cush, and the name of the third is Tigris, the one that goes to the east of Asher, and the fourth river is Euphrates. And the Lord God took the human and set him down in the Garden of Eden to till it and watch it. And the Lord God commanded the human, saying, From every fruit of the garden you may surely eat, but from the tree of knowledge, good and evil, you shall not eat. For on the day you eat from it, you are doomed to die. And the Lord God said, It's not good for the human to be alone. I shall make him a sustainer beside him. And the Lord God fashioned from the soil each beast of the field and each fowl of the heavens and brought uh, each to the human to see what he would call it. And whatever the human called the living creature, that was its name. And the human called names to all the cattle and to the fowl of the heavens and to all the beasts of the field. But for the human, no sustainer beside him was found. And the Lord God cast a deep slumber on the human and he slept. And he took one of his ribs And closed over the flesh where it had been. And the Lord God built the rib he had taken from the human into a woman. And he brought her to the human. And the human said, this one at last, bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, this one shall be called woman, for from man this one was taken. 
Therefore, does a man leave his father and mother and cling to his wife, and they become one flesh? And the two of them were naked, the human and his woman, and they were not ashamed. This is the word of the Lord. You guys can have a seat. Uh, The translation that I used for that, if you're curious, was um, a Hebrew scholar named Robert Alter, who uh, I use every once in a while, and I used it this week because the commentaries that I read and all the nuances they said were in the language were in his translation, so I thought, I'll just use that. Uh, How has your week been? A roller coaster? What are some roller coaster words you would describe to you to describe your or use to describe your week? Like what are the high words and the low words that you might use to describe your week? Chaotic? Chaotic. Exhausting? Loving. Pardon me? Loving. Loving. Discouraged. Discouraged. Exciting. Exciting. Thankful. Thankful. Euphoria? Oh, rewarding. It's like, we're going to talk about that. Um, Yeah, I imagine it's been a roller coaster. Um, I know for some, the words that they would use to describe their week are harder words that maybe they don't, like, it's hard to say in context um, of a group of people that are friends, but there are hard things that go on um, in our weeks. I... I think the gap between our daily existence and the existence that we're created for is a really wide gap. And um, studying through this passage this week, I thought we don't necessarily feel the gap because we compare this week to last week and the week before that and the week that we had this week last year or the year before that, not to what we were made for. And it's just hard for us to know what we were made for, even though we have a deep-seated sense of what we were made for. Genesis 2 is meant to give us an idea of what we were made for. And Genesis 2 tells us that God created a, a paradise for us to live in with him and with each other. And so this message requires uh, some thinking, but probably more than most messages, some feeling with it too. And Really, all I want to say today is this. You were created to be in the presence of the God who created you. Like, that's what you were made for. You were designed to exist in his presence, to thrive in his presence. You weren't designed to function apart from his presence. You're made for his presence. And in his presence is the very best place you will ever be. His presence, more of his presence, is the thing that we should long for the most in our lives. And my guess is that this week, in the pressures of whatever this week brought, or this month, or this year, our like escape, our default escape isn't if I just had more God. That's not the place we retreat to. We retreat to, uh, you know, in a moment, our phones. Um, We may retreat to a drink. We may retreat to a workout or to more work or more sex, or more money, or our kids, whatever, to close the gap between here and what we were made for. But I don't think the thought is, is a default for us. You know what would make things better right now? The presence of God in the midst of this situation. And that is rightfully complicated, um, 
And that's why we're going through this series, and it's why the Bible is so big. But the whole, the whole story is about the presence of God. And right here in the beginning, we see that he creates us to be in his presence. We'll see it this week. We'll see it more next week, how sin separates us from his presence. The Old Testament is a story of pursuit where God pursues reconciling us to his presence. In Jesus, he reconciles us to himself and then gives us the Holy Spirit and says, we're now the temple that the Holy Spirit resides in, so we have his presence. But we don't have his presence in the fullness that we had it back then, or we don't experience it in the same way. And at the end of the book in Revelation, John writes, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. That is the end of the story because it's what we're made for, the dwelling place of God. We will experience his perfect presence again. And that verse goes on. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And in a way, that's a return to this scene in Genesis chapter 2. In Genesis chapter 2, there are no tears. There is no death. There's no mourning. There's no crying. There's no pain. And it is impossible for us to grasp how amazing this would be to understand the total joy and peace of the pure presence of the Lord. But that's why he's given us these words. So we're going to give it a shot and take a look at what he says. Let me point out a few things about um, Genesis chapter 2. The word Eden is a word in Hebrew that means a place of pleasure or delight. And so he creates this place of pleasure for us, and that's how we're supposed to understand it. I, uh, a couple weeks ago, I gave a sermon on work, but I, I started by reading all of Genesis 1 into the beginning of Genesis 2, and I missed a few things that I, I saw then. There's a refrain in Genesis chapter 1 where he creates things, and it says, the Lord saw that it was good. Um, and that refrain is repeated, I think it's six times, but it's not repeated every day. And I noticed it a couple weeks ago, but it was late in the week, and I didn't think it mattered for the sermon, so I didn't dig into it. But this week, someone pointed out that the refrain doesn't come up. It's not on day one, and it's not on day two. It's not until day three, and it's not until God creates land. And he said, when you look at it, he only says that after he creates things that are going to be useful for people. And so he creates the land on day three and says it was good. And on day four, he creates um, the trees that we'll eat from, and he says it was good. And his point is that he set this place up for us. He, cre he created the whole thing uh, for us to exist on. Um, it says in this passage, he forms the man from the ground, and so it's Adam from Adama, which is a Hebrew. Hebrew is like dirt, and he creates man from it. Or in this translation, human from humus, which is not hummus. I got caught up on that for a second. I thought, that's gross, but it's not. And he breathes life. He breathes life into his nostrils, and he's alive. It says that he causes to sprout from the ground every tree that's lovely to look at. That's how it's worded. He creates beauty. He creates beauty. He didn't need to do that. But thank God he created beauty, right? And for every tree that's good for food. And so he 
he created us to get hungry, and then he gave us the thing to eat. But more than that, he gave us 10,000 taste buds so that it would be pleasurable for us to eat. And he puts the tree of life in the middle of the garden. And the way the story is written and moves forward, that tree, if we eat of it, we will live forever, which is hard to grasp, right? The idea of living forever. Um, and yet, most, most people, when you survey people, believe in life after death. Like most people, most of us believe this is not the end of it. Like there is a forever that we exist in. And it's hard to talk about specifics without sounding crazy because who can see through the veil? Like it's a matter of faith and what God's revealed to us. But we believe this. And the other reason it's, it's not so crazy that we're meant to live forever is because death is so hard when death is the thing that should not be hard for us because it's not death and taxes, it's just death. It is a thing you can count on. Unless the Lord comes back, we will experience death. Everyone in this room, all the people that we know, our folks, our children, all of them will experience death. And yet, we don't plan for it. We don't think about it. When it happens, we are crushed by it. And the Bible's answer to why that's so is because we weren't created for death. Death is an interruption that wasn't made to be there. We were made to eat from this tree and live forever. Now, when you read through to chapter 3 and the end of chapter 3, and there's so much that goes on in these first three chapters, I missed this for years, at the very end of chapter 3, he, uh, he removes Adam and Eve from his presence in the garden, and he guards the door to the garden with two cherubim with flaming swords. And he says, don't let them back in here, because if they come back in and eat from the tree of life in the state that they're in after they've rebelled against God and fallen, we'll be stuck with them like that forever. And so he keeps us from getting back to that tree of life until he reconciles us. This is a little bit of a side note, but, and, and we'll get there in a couple months um, in the story. But where else does God guard his presence with two cherubim in the Bible? It's the top of the Ark of the Covenant that ends up in the tabernacle or the temple. And the presence of God resides right there. It's the same, it's the same motif. It's these two cherubim. They guard it. And when you get into the details of the tabernacle and the temple and the way that it's decorated and exactly how God prescribes that they put that together, it is a picture of the garden. It is all about us being in the presence of God and in those temple and tabernacle pictures that we are in God's presence, but only on God's terms. In Genesis 2, he puts us in this, he puts us in this beautiful place. And in verse 8 and verse 15, he uses put, but he uses two different words. And the second one is he like sets us down. In the rest of scripture, it's where God gives us rest and safety. He places us into the place that he has prepared for us. In the Garden of Eden, um, one author said, we tend to think of it as like a big vegetable garden, but it's more like Yosemite. I mean, there's a river that flows through it and then splits into four giant rivers. It's like the Mississippi flowing through this huge place that he's created for us. And in there, there's gold and there's delium and lapis lazuli. So I looked those things up. Gold, we get what gold is. I thought delium, this must be pretty cool. And this is not as cool as I thought it was going to be. Like that's ugly. So I looked it up and it, what it is is fragrance. And so he adds a sense to it. It is a beautiful smelling resin. And so it's filled with that. And so it doesn't just look beautiful, it smells beautiful. 
And this lapis lazuli, I think, is like onyx. And so it's this beautiful blue stone. And when you shine it up, this is how it looks. And this is the picture that he gives us. You can go to the next one. And this is the picture that he gives us of what uh, the Garden of Eden is like. And he puts us in it to watch it and to keep it. This Hebrew scholar, Robert Alter, thinks that those words really mean to worship and to obey. Like we're put in the garden to worship the Lord. And in the presence of the Lord, the default, what you would do is worship the Lord and protects them from themselves. He says, there's a tree in here. It's the, knowledge, the tree of knowledge, good and evil. And he says, don't eat from that because in the day you eat from that, you are doomed to die. You have limitations. Like God says, I am the one that understands good and evil. You are not able to understand good and evil. So leave that to me. He offers them protection. And, um, and later, when it says in Genesis chapter 3 that he appears in the cool of the day, the implication that there's a habit of, a, of appearing in the cool of the day. At a certain time of day, God would appear and talk with them and dispense to them good and evil as they needed to know it. I walk my dog most, most days and pray. This would be like walking my dog with Jesus beside me, <laughs> walking with me every single day. And then he gives us each other. And so in this story, we're made in his image, but not of his kind, not of the same substance of him. And the, the animals and the plants are something different. And so he creates a companion of the same substance and brings the companion to Adam. Um, and it's the first time in the Bible he breaks out into poetry. Moses breaks out into poetry to describe Adam's response to Eve and thank God for companions. And then in the end, he says they were naked and they were not ashamed. They were naked and they were not ashamed, which is a rather stunning uh, end to the second chapter of the Bible um, where it describes something akin to a nude beach, like they're naked, you know, like don't look, Johnny, don't look at the, what's going on in the second chapter of the Bible. But naked and unashamed, man. That might be the key. I read a book uh, years ago. I, I remember picking this book up of, of all places at the airport bookstore, and it was called The Breviary of Sin. I still don't really know what that word means, uh, but it was a great book. And he said, one of the ways that you describe sin is that sin is any violation of God's shalom. And he went into this idea of shalom. And Genesis chapter 2 is a picture of God's shalom. Shalom is the way things are supposed to be. And that we have a deep sense. We've never experienced that, but we have a deep sense that there is a way that things are supposed to be. It is why all of our books and our TV shows and our movies end with some form and they lived happily ever after, or at least until next week. You know, the next episode, or the next book, or the next movie in the series. But there's resolution. Even though, like, we don't see that. What we see is death, but we believe in resolution. Because we're made for this shalom. There is a way that things are supposed to be, and we know that this isn't it. And shalom is more, peace is more than the absence of conflict. It's the presence of harmony. And so in this scene, they're at peace with God. They have peace with their own being. They're naked and unashamed. Uh, they have peace with each other and peace with the created world around them. Peace with God 
peace in their own being, peace with each other, and peace with the creation. Does that characterize the week that you just went through? You were created to be in the presence of the God who created you, and in his presence, it's the very best place you will ever be. And we experience his presence because of what Christ has done for us by the power of the Holy Spirit. We're here to worship and be in his presence this morning, but we don't experience the way they experienced the fullness that we were created for. We should wake up every morning thinking, oh, that I could get closer to him today, that I could experience more of the fullness of God, because that is the thing far and away that would satisfy me the most. Not checking our phones. Most people uh, don't want to be naked around other people. Every time I preach this, there's like one person that's like, I don't have any problem with being naked around other people. Well, there's something wrong with you, okay? <laughs> you know, when you start public speaking, they, they tell you if you get nervous, imagine that everybody's naked. I've never done that, for the record. But they tell you that because when you're up speaking in front of people, you feel a little bit naked. Like it's all out in front of people, but not, we don't, it's not, it is kind of weird that we wear clothes the way that we do, but it's, but you're like, it's, it's more naked emotionally. The idea that people see everything about you. If people knew everything about you, everything, what emotions would that generate in you? I'd be scared said this before, if we could get a clip of everybody's worst 30 seconds from like the last month, and we got in here on a Sunday morning and locked the doors, and with no commentary, just played clip after clip after clip after clip after clip, we would either cease to be a church, or we would be the greatest church ever because we'd have to show each other grace in ways that we normally don't have to show each other grace. If people looked at your browsing history, how would you feel about that? And it doesn't have to be like bad or nefarious, really. It can just be like kind of weird. Like it's, a, it's a, a tale of what's going on inside your head. People would be like, are you okay? I read a quote, it's probably two years ago now, that I hadn't seen. It said, everybody has a public life that they show everybody, and they have a private life. They either they show the people closest to them, or they can't hide from the people close to them. But he added, they have a secret life that really nobody knows about. And most of that secret life is probably just up in here. And things that you can't help, even. You know, and Jesus talked about that. It's not just about what you do with your hands but about what comes out of your mouth. And it's not just about what comes out of your mouth, but like the thoughts that bounce around in there themselves are problematic because they lead to the things that come out of your mouth and what you do with your hands. Like we're broken at levels that we can't even comprehend. And we work hard not just to avoid talking to each other about that, but even admitting it to ourselves. There's been movies over time about what it would be like if you couldn't, you couldn't help but tell the truth 
you know. It's one with Jim Carrey a few years ago where he's a deadbeat dad and his kid at his birthday wishes that his dad would not be able to tell a lie for a day. Would you have any friends left? If you were naked, if people saw everything, would you have things to be ashamed of? I think we deeply feel that and protect it. I, um, this, this book, I put this out in the weekly, it's, it's probably almost 20 years old now, called Searching for God Knows What, and it's one of my favorite books. I've had my kids read this book, um, and it's because he, he spends a lot of time in Genesis, but he talks about emotionally how the gospel works within us, how the absence of God's presence works within us, but then what it's supposed to be like, what Jesus is like, and how he's different from us markedly, and, and what explains that. It's a great book. At one point, he says this, a child learns early there is a fashionable and unfashionable in the world, an ugly and a pretty, a valued and an unvalued. Where this system comes from, God only knows, but it's rarely questioned, and though completely illogical and agreed upon by everyone as evil, it remains in play, commanding our emotions as a possession. It isn't something taught to us by our parents. It's something that comes naturally, as though a radioactive kind of tragedy happens, screwing up our souls. Adulterated or policed, the system can grow into something more civilized, but no less dominant as a drive of nature. In youth, the system is obvious. If you want to know how the operating system to which humans are subjected works, step into the class, a classroom of preteen students and listen to the dialogue. You'll hear the constant measurements, the talk about family wealth, whose father drives what car, who lives in what neighborhood, and who is dating whom. You would probably update this to check their Snapchat, you know, and you'll find out what it's really like. He says, here's how it feels. From the first day of school, the conversation is the same as it would be as if hundreds of students were told to stand in line, ranging from best to worst, coolest to most uncool, each presenting their case for value, each presenting an offense to the cases of others. Alliances being formed as caricatures of reality television. And here's what's terrible. There will be a sort of punishment being dealt to those at the end of the line, each person dealing out castigation as a way of dissociation from the geeks driven by the fear that associating with someone at the end of the line might cost them position, as if the two might be average, landing each of them in the space in between. He says in this book, he read a study that said that the, um, the greatest predictor of someone's like social status when they're grown up is their social status in the third grade. Like more so than their IQ, their upbringing, like just this starts early with this and it keeps going. And we have the sense of comparing ourselves to each other and um, can't escape it. A few weeks ago, I started doing this um, thing that John uh, Fouché suggested called Journey Mates. And it's kind of like a monthly silent retreat. Um, it's good. It's a little weird. And it's, it's going to take some getting used to. But so I, we go to this guy's house in North Raleigh. It works for Journey Mates. And it's five, it was five pastors that I'd never met before, and uh, the guy that was leading it, and he started just silence, you come in, sit down, don't talk, just stare at each other, and he read, he read a passage, and it's something called Lectio Divina, which is where he just reads the passage, and then you just sit and kind of meditate on it, and then he reads it again, and he does that four or five times, and you just listen for what God might say, and then you got an hour, so they live on this little lake in North Raleigh, and so you just go outside on their back porch, journal, walk, pray, whatever, and you come back in and sit down, and 
And he just says, what, you know, if God, you know, spoke to you about something, just go ahead and share it. And then the people are not supposed to, he gives another time of silence. You're not supposed to like pastor someone or counsel them or whatever. You're just supposed to listen on their behalf to the Lord if the Lord might say anything, which is hard because we're not used to doing that and weird. And so the passage was like, I forget what psalm it was, and, and the, it began like, come to the house of the Lord. And as I went through that, the only thing that really came to my mind was this invitation, come. And what I ended up saying was, I feel like when I get invited into things, um, like I'm, I'm still not supposed to be there, that people made a mistake in inviting me, or they had to. They did it because they had to. Maybe that's some type of imposter syndrome, I'm not really sure. And so I said this to five complete strangers. It was awful. And they said some things that I don't really remember what, because it's probably nervous. And I think I was really thinking, this is not a thought that I want to deal with. Can we just stuff this back down there somewhere and move on with everything? And I don't think I'm alone in feeling that. I was listening to a podcast the other day, and it's a Canadian pastor named Kerry Newhoff, and he was interviewing this lady named Nona Jones, who's like a rock star. I mean, she um, is now, I think, the, she's in charge of interfaith partnerships for Facebook. She pastors, their husband pastors. She kind of told her story about growing up with some trauma, became a Christian in high school, went to the University of Florida, was number one in her class, was the president of everything, graduated and at 23, got an executive position with a Fortune 100 company, and her career just, like, took off and hasn't stopped. She said, and I don't know if this, I think, a couple years ago, um, a friend of hers, she was talking to a friend of hers that was speaking at a conference, and uh, she was happy for her friend, and then she got off the phone, and she looked up the conference and realized that another friend of hers was speaking at the conference, and then she went down further and realized another friend of hers, and, like, all the friends in her group of friends were speaking at this conference except for her. And she said, it just set me... Like, I realized any of those insecurities, all I've been doing is performing to try and escape this thing, but it was still there, and no matter how much success I had, I couldn't get away from it. Like, it's the language of naked and unashamed, exposed and found wanting. And when you pay attention to that, like, I think it's all over the place. We have, this is so stupid, we have a fantasy football league that we've had for 15 years. I have the distinction of having won it the most and lost it the most. So when you win it, you get this obnoxious blue jacket that's got like the winner's names on the sleeves. Uh, when you lose it, though, Josh made a, it's like a Stanley, like a wooden Stanley Cup type trophy with a toilet seat on the top of it. It's a toilet bowl, and you get your picture and a little description of your team. I had a bad first week. Two of my top picks got hurt. And I thought, I'm going to be on that thing again. And I woke up Monday morning like in a bad mood because of this toilet bowl. And now I'm paying good money to get embarrassed and made fun of. And it like really bothered me. There's something wrong with us. Adam and Eve, they didn't worry about any of this stuff. I started thinking after that meeting with those pastors, like about how much time and energy I spend subconsciously managing people's esteem of me. 
They were at perfect peace with the Lord, perfect peace with each other, perfect peace with their own being, and perfect peace with creation. He makes a really compelling um, case in this book that what Genesis teaches us, those first few chapters, is that we are wired to get our sense of who we are from outside of ourselves. Um, we talk a lot about self-esteem and believing in yourself, but he says it's really not, like the point of this is that they had a perfect sense of who they are from the Lord, and that dictated everything else. And when that got screwed up, everything else got screwed up. And what we need is that. When you listen to stories of like near-death experiences, which I don't, I don't want to hang my hat on that, but it is data points, you know. And I'm curious, and I listened to another um, podcast about that this week. What they talk about a lot is like being in the perfect, like just a perfect sense of the love of God. And it changes him. And before we sin, that's what we have, the perfect presence of God and its rest and its peace and its joy and it's the best thing we can ever get and after the fall in the Bible whenever people encounter God they're scared to death of him here's what they knew in the garden of Eden they knew God loved them and God had told them they were very good. They knew that God loved them, and they knew they were good. And I am convinced that underneath all of our physical activity, all of our relational activity, all of our emotional and mental activity, we are looking for the answer to those two questions all the time. Am I loved? Am I good? At some random time this week, ask yourself those questions and think about what you're thinking about and what you're doing and how those things relate. Am I loved? Do people care that I'm here? And am I good? Am I meaningful? Is there something wrong with me? Do I have inherent value? And God in the garden has answered those questions. They had no doubt that God loved them. He created them with a place and a purpose and with people to enjoy. And this contrasts to other creation stories of that time, cosmologies of the Babylonians and the Egyptians and the Sumerians. It's a completely different story to say, yeah, he placed you here because he loved you. And he had declared, the end of day six, looks at everything he's made, including male and female, and says, it is very good. Oh, and we're dying to hear that. Here's a quote in this book from Toni Morrison, this famous author, and, and she was asked the process by which she became a great writer, like what classes she took or books she read or practices, habits that she developed. And she said, I'm a great writer because when I was a little girl and walked into a room where my father was sitting, his eyes would light up. That's why I'm a great writer. That's why there isn't any other reason. God had said and has said, you are very good, and nothing can replace that. Nothing can fill that hole. Now, in the next chapter, 
the serpent comes in and convinces them that God doesn't love them. The serpent says, surely you won't die. He's lying to you. He knows that when you eat of the tree, your eyes will be open and you'll be like God. He's trying to control you. He doesn't love you. He loves himself. It's just a lie. Part of the reason I believe the Bible is that that was written 3,500 years ago. It was recorded, and it's the same lie that we buy every single day we hear that lie. Does God love me? And there's never been a reason to question the love of God for us. And they buy it, and they eat from the tree of knowledge, good and evil, and they know that they're no longer good because more than just they didn't trust God, they rebelled against the one who had created them and put them in this place and loved them the most and didn't lie to him but told him the truth. And it was shattered in a moment. And so now we wonder, does God love me? And am I good? And it drives everything. That moment was a catastrophe. It was... Uh, I remember being a kid and walking in the mall with my dad and holding his hand. And I let go of his hand because I got distracted by something in a shop window. And then I grabbed his hand and he pulled his hand away because he wasn't my dad. In, the, in that moment, it's like, like, like life is over when you're a five-year-old kid, you know? I used to have a recurring dream that we went on a vacation to Disney and we went to the Kennedy Center, and the tour bus took us to, like, the far reaches where some rocket was, and I just got distracted, and the bus had to leave, and so my folks left, and they had to catch their plane, and so I, like, put a quarter in the thing and called them at home, and they're like, good luck. It was a recurring dream for me. Uh, it is what happened there, the worst breakup. It's, a, it's like a divorce. It's an unexpected death. All of that on steroids is what happens in the garden. And so now we wonder um, if he loves us and we're struggling to figure out how we can be good because the deeds and words and thoughts that come out of us tell us that we're not. Augustine said, our hearts are restless until they rest in you. Now I have some good news. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever should believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. He never, ever stopped loving us. Never for a moment did his love waver. He's never loved you any more or any less than he loves you right this second. And the Bible is a story of his pursuit for you, his doing everything possible to make presence possible again and that the story is driven by his love for the people that he created and you cannot make yourself good but the one who made you good in the first place can make you good again not by your efforts but by his efforts and so christ comes from heaven to earth shows us the life that we're meant to, to live never sins and so he doesn't have to pay the price for his own sins because he never sins so he can pay the price for our sins and he takes that goodness this is how the Bible talks about it, gives us his goodness in exchange for our badness. And our badness puts him on the cross. He's doomed to die. He experiences death in our place. And when the Father looks at us, he sees the righteousness of Christ. Not our righteousness, not by works, but by faith, the righteousness 
of Christ. And so you are loved, and in Christ, you can be good. In Christ, we can be naked and unashamed again because he hung naked and took all, all of our shame. None of the things that we exert so much energy towards and effort and angst, nothing will compare to that. Nothing will compare to it. Uh, in a minute, we're going to take communion and remember this, and Kelly and Ryan can come back up. And I think... Um, I didn't grow up in a tradition where we took communion every week. We've kind of grown into that as a church. I think the reason he says, as often as you do this, do it and remember it to me, and he wants us to do it on a regular basis, is because it's so easy for us to forget. It's so, it takes so much for us to believe that he loves us and that he can make us good again. And we need it week after week, day after day, moment after moment to believe that he loves us. And so we, in doing this, remember his body that's been broken for us and his blood that's been shed for us so that we can once again be in his presence. I'm going to ask you to, um, to bow your head and close your eyes for a second. And um, not knowing where everybody is, not knowing if you've been walking with Jesus for 50 years or if this is all new to you. I pray that you hear out of this that God formed you. God desires you. God has redeemed you. And I'm the pastor. I've been in this passage all week. It's hard for me to hang on to the moments that I've had of like, this is it. This is it. This is the only thing that matters is being in the presence of God. And he's made it possible. But it takes something to stay there. My prayer is that we get a few minutes in that space. And it holds on to us. One last thing about this passage in Genesis 2. In Genesis 1, God's name is Elohim, which is a generic word for God. In Genesis 2, his name becomes Yahweh. And the rabbis have debated this for hundreds, if not thousands of years. That Yahweh, the way that they say it in the Hebrew is like, it's like breathing. So it's an in and out. It's, it's like a Yah. And they surmise that what that means is that God wants you to know that he is never further away than your next breath. Never, ever doubt the love and the desire that the God who made you has for you.